hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the Bombard story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're continuing Chapter 11. Chapter 11 continued, Atlantic Challenge. On the 1st of November, I reached latitude 20 degrees north and turned right. My course was now west, still a few degrees to the south, but very little. I had to try and cover the degrees of longitude and put the dinghy on the opposite tack, that is to say, the sail had swung from the right side of the boat to the left, and the normal course should have stayed in that position without being touched until my arrival. In fact, I was no longer steering the boat at all. I had lashed the rudder so that the dinghy followed the compass course. From time to time, every two hours or so, I checked the course and occasionally made some small adjustment to the rudder position. The night was spent in a constant condition of dampness, even when the day had been fine and sunny, but in spite of which, I usually slept for about 12 hours. It may cause surprise that I was able to rest for so long in such circumstances, but it was largely a question of confidence. I was satisfied that the dinghy would stay above the waves which assailed it from all sides. I realised that if a wave should break in board, the situation would be desperate, but that the dinghy was unlikely to capsize. My reasoning was based on the comforting, if somewhat oversimplified, argument that if nothing happened during the day, I had nothing to fear during the night. I had nothing to protect my head, as I only pulled up the tent as far as my neck like a blanket, leaving my face open to a starlit sky such as I have never seen before or since. The light of the moon did duty as a friendly night watchman's lamp. The trade wind continued steady. I did not dare read too much for fear of having no way to occupy my time once I had run through my stock of books, which was already getting low. Although I continued to ship a little water from time to time, my things started to dry out. I took advantage of the better conditions to start my sums again, and every day seemed to tell the same optimistic story. You will land about the 23rd. You will land about the 23rd. You will land about the 23rd. I estimated my longitude at about 27 degrees 30 minutes. There seemed to be far fewer birds and not quite as many fish. It was now taking me two or two and a half hours a day to catch the necessary amount. There was still no sign of any floating seaweed, but then I was aiming to pass well to the south of the Sargasso Sea. It was clear that I was still drifting to the south because the signals from Dakar radio station gradually increased in strength. I was also making headway to the west, as I was starting to pick up some of the American stations, but the airwaves over the Atlantic were monopolised by two nations, Britain and Russia. Sunday the 2nd of November will remain in my memory because I did a very stupid thing. For some days, my health had not been too good. The change of food and the constant humidity had caused a general skin eruption of painful little spots. I hoped to prevent from forming scabs by resting my weight on a little pneumatic cushion, the only one I had. Some clumsy movement must have knocked it overboard, a fact I only realised when I saw it floating a couple of hundred yards or so astern. I lowered the sail, put out the sea anchor and dived in to fetch it. I'm a strong swimmer and I reached the cushion in a few minutes. Imagine my horror when I turned round to see the dinghy sailing off without me too fast for me to be able to catch it. The sea anchor, normally shaped like a parachute, had fouled itself and was no longer arresting the drift. 
it was quite clear that I would become exhausted long before I could overhaul it. At that moment, the heretic very nearly continued the voyage without me. When I was training to swim the English Channel in 1951, in top physical condition, I once swam for 21 hours. Weakened as I was by privation and lack of exercise, I could not possibly have equaled the feat. I abandoned the cushion to its fate and concentrated on the fastest crawl of my life. Even in my race at Las Palmas with the elder Boiteau, I am sure I never attained the same speed. I managed to cut down the distance a little, but then had difficulty in even maintaining it. Suddenly, I saw the heretic slow down. I caught it up and just managed to hoist myself on board. By a miracle, the cords of the sea anchor had disentangled themselves in the nick of time. I was physically and morally exhausted and swore it was the last dip I would take on the journey. Relations with my marine neighbours assumed a definite pattern. They had become almost like family friends. There were five or six dolphins and a petrel, which paid me a flying visit every day at four o'clock. It was a little blackbird, its tail, feathers tipped with white, about as large as a Paris sparrow. It baffled me how it had managed to cover such distances to seek its sustenance in the middle of the ocean. It approached from astern every day, sometimes settling down in the sea after four little steps on the water, and disappeared the moment the sun set. The dolphins were much more faithful and stayed with me 24 hours a day. They were quite easy to recognise. In trying to catch them with my bent knife the first day, I had wounded them and the marks still showed. I noted with interest that fish, like human beings, seemed to heal slowly in seawater. One of my dolphins had an open place about the size of a half crown towards the end of its back and another had been hurt on one of its fins. There were five or six I recognised in the same manner and I gave them all names. The largest one I called Dora. She never left me. She took good care not to come near enough for a second thrust. She cast a fishy eye in my direction whenever she came near enough to the boat, and sometimes turned on her side to look at the sky. When the wind was slight and my speed dropped, they used to take quick runs at the dinghy and smack the floats with their tails, as if to ask why I was lagging. They were joined regularly by newcomers, and these were the ones I managed to catch. All I needed was my bone hook fixed to a length of string, baited with the flying fish I picked up every morning on my tent. I pulled the bait rapidly across the surface of the water, as if it was a flying fish skidding over the surface before diving again. The dolphins fairly fought for it, like dogs for a bone, and one of them usually took the hook. All the new arrivals fell for this trap, but my old friends, knowing me too well, never as much moved from their tracks. During the night of the 3rd of November, I caught, in a flurry of phosphorescence, a long, thin, villainous-looking fish with a mouthful of vicious teeth which, by night, seemed to drip a sort of whitish poison. Curiously enough, in spite of the fight it had put up in the water, after one final contortion, it seemed to go dead the moment I pulled it aboard. Most fish flop around for some time after they are landed. I assumed it was a fish normally inhabiting great depths. Its eyes were huge in proportion to its head, and its teeth enormous. I completely failed to identify it, and in view of its menacing copper colour and the poisonous look of the slime it was dripping on my sleeping bag where it had landed, I picked it up by the tail with immense care and threw it back in the water. I learned later that it was a genflus, 
the same sort of snake mackerel which landed on the sleeping bag of one of the members of the crew of the Contiki. The beast must have had a particular affinity for sleeping bags. I used mine with a certain amount of care from then on, thinking with some trepidation of the organic poisons used by South American Indians to treat their arrows. At 11 o'clock the next morning, a ship passed about a dozen miles away without seeing me. Pity the poor castaway, I noted. He can count on no one but himself. I was between the ship and the sun and was not sighted, even though the vessel stopped a good ten minutes to take its position. I wish it had sighted me, as I could have got a reassuring message to my family. Its course was to the northeast, presumably on the route from the Americas to the Azores. It must be remembered that I thought myself much further west than I was, and the ship was probably on its way from the Cape Verde Islands to the Canaries. If only I had known what the future held for me, a new error had started to creep into the calculations of my position. The pilot book gave me the hour of sunset for my latitude on the meridian of Greenwich. In theory, I should have added four minutes for every degree of longitude, and the same was nominally true for the times of the moon's rise and set. Now, although my estimated longitude did not correspond at all with the longitude given by the sun at midday, and when it set, it did coincide exactly with that given by the time of the setting of the moon. I was quite incapable of explaining this discrepancy, and only learned the secret later from a French naval officer. It seems there is a problem of refraction involved. I started to pass the time with little private parlour games, particularly with memory tests. Although I had never been a lover of arithmetic, I started to do immensely complicated sums in my head, dividing the 2,700 miles of my voyage by the number of miles I estimated for the day's run in order to calculate how many days were left. And this I did half a dozen times or more, each time with a different divisor. To add to the turmoil in my head, I became very superstitious about small things, the inevitable accompaniment of solitude. If I could not find my pipe the moment I looked for it, I considered it a bad omen. The little doll mascot which my friends had given me on leaving the Canaries began to acquire a tangible personality. I used to look at her and start a conversation, first of all in monosyllables, then whole sentences, describing exactly the next thing I was going to do. I did not wait for a reply, it was not yet a dialogue, although that would come. For the time being, I just needed to assert myself. My dwindling stock of damp cigarettes created another superstition. Now and again, I would try and light one. The number of matches I had to strike came to represent the number of days I would need to complete the voyage. Taking as point of departure the fact that I could not possibly arrive before the 23rd of November, I used to count as follows. If the first match caught light, I would arrive on the 23rd. The second meant arriving between the 23rd and the 25th, and so on. You can see how far a box could lead. If it took too long, I used to discount the evidence. I was still an optimist, that is to say, I accepted all the good arguries and ignored all the bad ones. This is no bad basis for contentment. I began to know the exact sound of everything on board at normal speeds, and when the wind was moderate, I used to estimate my speed by the exact note of the sail's song. Although the wind had dropped for a couple of days, it freshened again, and I appeared to be making about four knots. If only I could keep it up, I would be there in 20 days. Tuesday the 4th of November. 
The moon site gave me nine degrees of difference from that of the sun and three degrees from my estimated position. I am completely baffled. My radio is working less well and I can only hear it during the evening hours when conditions are most favorable. I still take my estimated position as a basis with that given by the moon as an optimistic possibility. Still steering due west and calculate I am on latitude 18 degrees 58 minutes north. Five months ago, we were in sight of Menorca, where we were to land the next day at the end of our first lap. It seems a long time ago. By 1800 hours, had caught no fish, particularly exasperating as I am surrounded by pilot fish. By 1900 hours, had caught my dinner. At least I shall not have to fast during the night. Visited by a magnificent white seagull and surrounded by porpoises. Weather perfect, with the wind driving the heretic along at maximum speed with no waves breaking inboard. If only this lasts. My urine was still perfectly normal and my general health seemed good unless I compared it with my last week on land. There would be many days, however, on which the comparison would be even more marked. The voyage was turning out more difficult and certainly more tedious than I had expected. However, at the end of 12 days, I expected to change the chart and start using that for the Caribbean approaches. That would mean I had 800 miles to go. The voyage from Casablanca to Las Palmas began to seem like child's play. I'd finally given up any idea of showing a light at night. I may have missed thereby an occasion of sending news by a passing ship, and I began to brood about this during hours when I might have been reading. Somehow, I'd lost my taste for books, and I felt I should have paid more attention before leaving to the old problem of what books to take on a desert island. In order to have a little of everything, I had brought with me some Moliere and a complete Rabelais, a Cervantes, a Nietzsche, Aeschylus, and in the two languages Spinoza, a selection from Montaigne, and as musical scores, the two passions of Bach and the quartets of Beethoven. I have no fear of a collision. The sea is absolutely empty. I will start showing a light at about 50 degrees west, which is to say in about 12 days, unless there is an increase in traffic before then. On Wednesday the 5th of November, I invented a new superstition, meditating profoundly on the significance of Wednesdays in my voyage. 18th day. Wednesdays have acquired a curious importance, or at least so I believe. I am sure that I shall arrive on a Wednesday. Wednesday the 11th of June, first lap to Tudadella. Wednesday the 18th of June, return to Tudadella after the capsize. Wednesday the 9th of July, landing on Ibiza Beach. Wednesday the 16th of July, entering harbour of Ibiza. Wednesday the 23rd of July, entering Motril Harbour. Wednesday the 13th of August, left Tangier alone. Wednesday the 20th of August, arrived at Casablanca. Wednesday the 3rd of September, arrived in the Canaries. Wednesday the 10th of September, news of Nathalie's birth. Wednesday the 24th of September, arrived at Casablanca from Paris. Wednesday the 1st of October, presented with my radio. And Wednesday the 5th of November, halfway between Casablanca and the West Indies. The importance of Wednesdays could not be underestimated. I was being visited more frequently by sharks, but I had become quite used to them and treated them with complete disdain. They seemed a cowardly lot, a smart rap on the snout, and they were off in a flash. 
They often came to prod the floats with their noses, and when I picked up an oar and clouted them on the head, they never waited for more, but plunged out of sight immediately. My dolphins must have been pleased, because they usually did a prudent disappearing act whenever there were sharks around. I must have gone up in their estimation, because their numbers round the heretic continually increased. But if they remained completely faithful, the pilot fish abandoned me when I met my first boat, the Arachica. Always opportunists, they preferred the company of the strong. That Wednesday the 5th of November, I witnessed a remarkable spectacle. I had already seen a number of shoals of flying fish and most of the time they did just one glide over the surface of the sea. But when they were being attacked by the dolphins, they often took off again from the crest of a wave. Using their tails to pick up speed, they literally beat their fins to become airborne again in order to get away from their pursuers. The dolphins usually outwitted them. Skimming along with their dorsal fins breaking the surface, they managed to be on the spot where the flying fish touched the water again and the wretched creatures usually found a large open mouth waiting for them instead of a clear patch of sea. That day, the scene was even more extraordinary. Great shoals of flying fish were being attacked by a flock of shearwaters. I was mystified as to how there could be 11 shearwaters circling round me at such a distance from the coast. What I did not know was that at that moment, I was almost within sight of the Cape Verde Islands. All would have been well if my buttocks had not started to feel sore. I was afraid I might be developing boils. I also had a slight attack of paratitis, the inflammation of the salivary glands, of which the more severe and infectious form is mumps. However, I was still full of hope, and after four days, I was able to note, should arrive next week, things could be worse, but I am starting to become obsessed with the idea of food. Promise myself an absolute feast of fruit when I arrive. I'm getting tired of fish and birds. The castaway is always told that if birds appear in large numbers, land must be near. In this case, it happened to be true, as land was only about 60 miles away, although it would have been quite impossible for me to head for it in view of the prevailing wind and current. Another proverb of the sea is that land lies in the direction towards which the birds fly. The trouble was that when they left me, they flew off not to the southeast where the Cape Verde Islands lay, but to the west, where there was in fact no land for 1,500 miles. It seemed an unkind way of nourishing my hopes. My next entry read, Very hot. Oh, for a good pint of beer. My worst privation is undoubtedly the lack of real fresh water. I am sick of eating raw fish, but even more tired of drinking its juice. If only it would rain for a change. There are plenty of clouds in the sky and the sea is often rough, but there is no sign of rain. I have yet to see a drop. As a matter of fact, I was not thirsty. I just wanted a decent drink for a change, rather like a man who loses his appetite for macaroni, but happily wolf's chicken. I had a nagging desire for fresh water, but it was not a question of physical suffering. During the night of Thursday the 6th of November, I was again attacked by a shark. He seemed to be a particularly tough customer, and I could not keep him off. He must have acquired a taste for human flesh. I fixed my knife to the end of an oar, and while he butted away at the floats, I got ready to defend myself, and the next time he turned on his back to attack in an angle, I stuck the knife in him and slit him from throat to tail. The sea turned a blackish colour round him, and I saw his entrails spilling out. My dolphins pounced on them. 
they always seemed hungry, for once anyway, the hunter had become the hunted. The fish must have found the dinghy an original and useful companion, as I was now surrounded by a veritable aquarium. I had never seen so many fish in all my life, even in the aquarium at Monaco. I hope there are some red faces among those who predicted that I would never catch a thing. Unfortunately, my diet was giving me a mild form of diarrhoea. It certainly did not come from drinking seawater, as it was some time since I had found this necessary. I was writing up my log when another shark appeared, an absolute monster. It must have been nearly 15 feet long. I grabbed my camera and started to turn the handle. It was a formidable looking beast, looking absolutely ferocious with a blunt snout and a huge mouth. I closed the valves between my floats as an emergency precaution. If it had managed to bite a chunk out of one of them, I would have to rely on the remaining four. But these beasts, cowards by nature, are much less aggressive during the day than at night. This one came to inspect my rudder oar and swam around me a few times, but otherwise kept his distance. I gave myself a figurative slap for my stupidity in diving after my pneumatic cushion a few days earlier. If a beast like this had attacked me, it would have been the end of the story. I could still hear the radio at night, but it had become little more than a whisper, and half the time I had to put my ear to the loudspeaker. I could no longer make any check on the time in order to plot my position, and I had not learned to make use of the pole star. In any case, the seawater had started to attack the mirrors in my sextant, and the pole star was not bright enough to show in it. I was now completely out of touch with the land, was deprived of news and even started to forget what a human voice sounded like. The only voice and tangible presence left was my own, and my life started to resemble more and more that of the animals round me. I began to share their sensations and reactions, eating the same food and catching the same flying fish. My little petrel still kept up his four o'clock rendezvous while the dolphins had become my protégés. We all tried to hide from the same sun, they in the shadow cast by the dinghy and I behind the sail during the afternoon. Like the fish, my point of reference became the wave instead of the familiar path or row of trees by which the landsman finds his way. It became almost impossible to realise that there were people on land living a regular life and attaching importance to such things as the clothes they wore. Under the broiling sun, the day more or less passed me by. I had returned to the primitive life. But I still felt a tingle in my spine on reading through my log especially at the point where I was clearly starting to lose strength. I could see the change in my handwriting. The solitude was becoming increasingly oppressive, and the log was my substitute for a human companion. Where I had filled a page or a page and a half each day at the beginning of the journey, I now scribbled two or even three and a half. I wrote little but often, and I was worried that I might run out of paper, Needing to sacrifice a book for purposes of my natural functions, I finally decided that the most apt was probably the Rabelais. Friday the 7th of November, 20th day. The matches from the Canaries now refuse to light. Fortunately, I still have a few boxes made in Morocco, and these still seem to work, even when soaked in seawater and dried in the sun, but I shall have to go carefully with them. Calm night, regular wind, I slept well. 
Staying awake to check the time of moonrise, I was overcome by the feeling of what a strange and formidable element the sea is. It seems to form part of a system so entirely different from normal existence that it might belong to another planet. But there it is at my feet, alive yet inscrutable. Here and there, lights appear in the depths, signs of a life only to be guessed at, but which seems intense. They look like stars half-hidden in a cloudy night sky. The fish around me leap and swim to and fro, protagonists of an unseen and mysterious existence. Life at the surface is only the thin upper layer of another world. 21st day. A little bubble of water appeared on one of the floats this morning, revealing a tiny air leak. I had a box of rubber patches, but the glue did not seem to hold. I used as substitute a substance of a more physiological nature. I hope I can spare the details by referring to the use to which I am putting my Rabelais. As long as it holds, I'm all right. Early morning and evening brought me a splendid catch of fish. I wondered how the experts would feel. How does one become an expert without any practical experience of a problem? Doubtless by extrapolation, but it is not a reliable scientific method. The clouds were thickening and I undressed in their pleasant shade. I examined my various small rashes caused, I assumed, by perspiration, but my extremities were in good order and my physiological functions perfectly normal. I had grown the most tremendous beard. Jeanette, my dear, I hope all this will be over soon, but still no ship in sight. That day, I read the article on swordfish in my small encyclopedia of fishing. The redoubtable adversary and scourge of the cetaceans normally uses its sword to slash and not to spear, as might be supposed, but when in a blind rage, as is sometimes the case, will attack ships with the point. Hardly reassuring, I could only hope there was little likelihood of meeting one. I began to think my compass was playing me up. My nominal course was 290 to 280 degrees, but the true course seemed to be about 260. Unless I was making much greater headway than I thought, and that I preferred to doubt. I expected soon to be on latitude 17 degrees north. I was on the parallel of 17 degrees 30 north, and intended to try and remain on it. I was particularly anxious to avoid the doldrums, especially when only a hundred miles or so from the coast. The sea continued to show inexplicable moods. Usually the swell was slow and regular, but for no apparent reason and with no increase in the force of the wind, it would suddenly become choppy and irregular, and I had to watch the boat carefully. My dolphins were still with me, and I was catching plenty of fish. Time was beginning to weigh heavily, and I counted blindly and unhesitatingly on arriving during the week of the 23rd to the 30th of November. It never entered my head that December would still find me at sea. On Saturday the 8th of November, I noted at dawn large flock of birds, in spite of being, as I thought, a thousand miles from the nearest land. A number of flying fish, each about the size of a large sardine, landed in the dinghy, and would, I am sure, have tasted delicious fried, even raw, they were not so bad and could have been taken for anchovies. My tame dolphins remained absolutely faithful, above all Dora, who seemed larger than ever and never gave me the slightest opportunity of catching her. That day the sun was very strong, but the nights were cool and extremely pleasant. I could still just hear the radio, providing I did not have it on for more than ten minutes at a time, sufficient 
on that day to learn that there had been a storm over Boulogne and Dunkirk. Poor Jeanette, I thought. How worried she must be. I wanted the whole thing to end as quickly as possible, more for her sake than for mine. My chief preoccupation was to lose no more latitude. Then the radio went silent for good. I was on latitude 17 degrees 14 minutes, which runs to the north of Guadeloupe between Antigua and Barbuda. I noted, I'm always in a hurry for night to fall. First of all, because it means another day gone. Secondly, because I can go to sleep trusting in providence. And finally, because I see nothing to upset me. This sort of passivity is typical of anyone who has been alone for a long time. He finishes by no longer dominating his surroundings, but bowing his head to whatever happens next. Any day not marked by some disturbing event is a good day, and an uneventful night is infinitely reassuring. That day, I was followed in the water by a long green sausage about 10 feet long and 9 inches or so in diameter. It was not a seaweed because it moved and wriggled. It finally cured me of any ideas of a swim. The next day, the 9th of November, the fresh wind became even stronger. I was well pleased as it pushed my speed up considerably, but I was worried about my patched sail. I got very wet during the night and was afraid I would pay dearly for my swifter progress by helpless immobility if my sail carried away. That was my fourth Sunday at sea, including the one on which I left. I hoped there would be only two more. From Monday, I was going to be able to talk to myself about next week. I had got tired of eating flying fish. In any case, they made a splendid bait for the dolphins and I could well do without them. During the night of the 9th and 10th, and during most of the following day, the wind remained strong. I was going along at a fine clip, but was haunted by the strain on the sail. For a whole week, I had not seen another ship, but for the first time, I caught a really big flying fish, about the size of a large mackerel. It was delicious. There are some big clouds gathering. It is going to be difficult to take my position tomorrow. Suddenly, I was threatened again by the ever-present danger of swamping. A wave broke near me and half-filled the boat, momentarily threatening a capsize. By now I was convinced that if the worst happened, it would mean death. With this in my mind, I had already put a little packet of barbiturates in my shirt pocket. I had made up my mind that if I was flung into the water, I was not going to fight it out for 30 hours or more. There was not the slightest possibility of receiving any sort of help. I thought the best thing was to put myself to sleep straight away. Although it might be supposed that my senses had become deadened, my fears increased. I had been at sea for 20 days, always with the realisation that one wave might finish me. The fact that the boat had at no time been in mortal danger made no difference. I was to remain at the mercy of that single wave until the last day of the voyage. I still thought it would only be another 10 days before I reached the shipping routes, but until then, there was no hope of succour. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help 
their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.